It is exciting to see the impact that uh, our foreign mission staff is having around the world. And uh, we had a little taste, actually, of the impact of, uh, that a church can have. If you could turn that, uh, that uh, projector off, it's right in my eyes, that would be great. Um, the impact that a church can have around the world. We, uh, last night we had a, a man by the name of Charles, and I'm not sure if you were in the service uh, that we baptized him or not, but Charles is uh, from China and is here as a student, and he uh, got connected to uh, Tim Chen in our church and some others who are uh, uh, hosting international students from IUN and from Purdue Cal. And so uh, they built a relationship with him, and through that relationship, uh, Charles became a Christian. And we baptized him right here uh, some weeks ago, and last night he was, he was in our commons, and Tim was with him, and he said, hey, Charles leaves to go back to China at 3 a.m. this morning, and, uh, and he would love to talk to you. And so we talked, and I prayed with him, and you know, we'll, we will probably never see Charles again. And I said to him, I said, Charles, when we get to heaven, I want to look you up, and I want to hear about the amazing Christian life that you lived uh, for the Lord. And he was, yes, yes. And just so wonderful uh, to see. We have a short-term little ministry with him. Comes to faith in Christ. We send him back to China uh, as a kind of missionary in his hometown, his homeland. And uh, that's an example of how we roll around here, and we want much more of that in the days ahead. Amen? So uh, we praise the Lord for that. So pray for Charles if he comes to your mind, and uh, that, would be a, that would be a very good thing. I have here in my hand a letter that uh, is one of my most prized possessions. This is a letter that my dad wrote me when I was 18 years old, and he read to me just uh, like a week before I left uh, to go for my freshman year of college. And I remember back then, my, my, my dad said, hey, I want, to, I want a little time with you before we go a little father-son time. So I'm like, okay, great. And so we set it up, and one night, uh, we, we left the house, we went to Kentucky Fried Chicken, we got a bucket of chicken, we went to a park, and we sat on a bench, and we just talked about life. And uh, there was this very much this sense of a new chapter and a new stage of our relationship and a new day in my life. And uh, he said, I have a letter that I would like to, uh, to read to you. And he pulled this letter out and he read it. Uh, and it's, it, at, the stop, at the top it says, this is a love letter from a thankful dad, which is really cool. And I, I mean, it's, it's long. Maybe you can see on the screen, it's many, many pages here, uh, all handwritten. And uh, there's places in the letter where I can see as he was writing it, uh, the tears were on the, on the paper and were blurring the ink. And, um, you know, dear Steve, how can I possibly write all my thoughts at a time like this? There are so many things to say, many of which I should have said to you many times over during the last few years to encourage you. But I only thought the thoughts and frequently couldn't get comfortable saying them. Please forgive me, he says. And goes on to just talk about our relationship. He gives me advice about friends in college. He gives me advice about life. He gives me advice about women. And uh, all of that is all in this uh, letter. And such a special moment in my life. And this is such a special uh, letter to me. Uh, 
because it was so reassuring to me of his love for me, my standing as his son. And while he has a lot of advice in here and things that he wants me to do, and he says to me clearly, there also was in the midst of all of those exhortations, a reassurance to me that he loves me. What John does in 1 John is he pauses and essentially writes a very brief version of this. As you know, we've been studying 1 John, and he has said a lot of things that really would make even the strongest Christian amongst us uh, quiver, because he has wanted to say, listen, if you want to know whether you're a Christian or not, let me tell you uh, what this means. He says, uh, if you're saved, you are not walking in darkness in your life. You are not a Christian if you think you are without sin. You are not a Christian if you celebrate sin. You are not a Christian if you fail directionally in your life to keep the commands of God. Those are strong words. And uh, even, you know, me preaching and all of us here, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that causes us and it ought to cause us to stop and to really take careful assessment of our lives and to ask the question, am I in the grace of God or not? And his intent with this, by the way, as I've said many times, is to make the false uh, Christians in the assembly realize that they need to come to faith in Christ and to reassure the genuine Christians that they are in the grace of God. No easy task, but that's what John is doing here. And so, We get to this little section we're studying today, and it's almost as if John pauses for a moment and he just, in a kind of loving pastoral way, wants to reassure the people that he's writing to that he sees in them actual reliable evidences of genuine salvation, a kind of reassuring pause. And it's very brief, by the way, because he gets right, he gets ripping right back into it. Next week we'll see, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. If you love the world, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's pretty strong, right? And so he's get, so let's enjoy the little siesta we have here of some kindness before we get right back into some of the hard things that he needs to say to us. So, reliable signs of genuine salvation. I am in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what is clear here, maybe if you had time to read it again, it would become clear to you that he's writing to to three different groups, which he identifies as children, young men, and fathers. And right away, we have to ask ourselves, well, uh, who is he addressing here? Who is he talking about? Uh, And there is uh, a lot of debate about it. In fact, there there is some intrigue in this because most of the debate about this if you read the commentary uh, the commentaries and i've read many of them about this they spend most of their time time on this passage trying to figure out who are the young children who are the young men and who are the uh, who are the fathers 
And he just lists them here. He doesn't exactly say who they are. Uh, there is some intrigue. There's no middle age mentioned here. So we could go, why not? Uh, there are no females that are mentioned here. It's children, young men, and fathers. And so uh, right away, the females here may be asking the question, well, what about us? I'm sure that's something that uh, Jennifer and I's uh, soon-to-arrive daughter will wonder as she reads this as well. So there's just a lot of intrigue in the passage, lots of intrigue in the passage for those that are having daughters or have daughters as far as what they will think about hermeneutically as they read a passage like this where they are not mentioned. So who is he referring to? And there are a couple possibilities, actually. Uh, he could be talking about stages of life, so that he's actually he's writing to the nursery, he's writing to the youth ministry, and he's writing to the seniors. You know, we could maybe view it that way, and some people have taken that position. He could be referring to stages of spiritual maturity, so that the, the children are the new believers and the uh, young men are the uh, adolescent Christians and the fathers are, are the seasoned Christians in the church. And there are variations on these different theories. In the end, we don't really actually know for sure. I think what he is doing here is he is doing the second of those options. He's writing to new believers. He's writing to uh, kind of the middle lappers. Uh, and he is writing to the seasoned veteran Christians in the church. What we know for sure that he is doing is that he is writing about authentic Christian experience and is describing what genuine salvation looks like and the reliable signs that I am actually a Christian. And we know that he's doing that in contrast to the false teachers and those that followed him followed them who were saying all kinds of crazy things like i'm in fellowship with god and yet my i can live in darkness who cares or i'm in fellowship with god and i have no the presence of sin is nowhere to be found in me and things like that and he's already refuted those things and now he contrasts that perspective with what the real thing looks like in three stages of christian experience new believers adolescent believers and uh, fathers or seasoned veteran Christians. So let's look at this from that perspective and talk about what are reliable signs of salvation in the stages of Christian experience. So we begin then with who he calls here little children or children in verse 13, uh, who I am believe he is talking about new believers. So what is the Christian experience of new believers? He says, if we could group the two statements together, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And I write you, to you children because you know the Father. So two things that he highlights here about early Christian experience. Forgiveness of sins, and knowledge of God. Of course, forgiveness of sins is very foundational to Christian experience. And even that little statement, think of it with me a second. Forgiveness of sins. There's a lot just in that, isn't there? I mean, if, if, if he just says sin, what do we already have to ponder? Well, what is a sin? And if there is a sin, uh, what is the standard for whether something is a sin or not? And if there is a standard for what is a sin or not, 
who makes the standard. And that person is the moral standard bearer. And indeed, that is the story, the the narrative of Christianity, that there is a moral standard giver, and that is God. And that God made this moral standard from the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. That this was a moral world that we live in and that there were consequences for sin from the beginning. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, of course, ate of the tree. And because of that, they died. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The reason we die is because of sin. Forgiveness of sins, therefore is a must-have starting point for every genuine Christian. If sin is my problem, sin is the cause of death, sin has broken my relationship with God, then if I am going to know God, that has to be taken care of. How is it taken care of? And the gospel of Christianity is that it is taken care of by Jesus. That he is our sin bearer. He's already said this in the letter. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, that it is Jesus' blood that purifies our sin. And in chapter 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He is the offering, the sacrifice that turns God's uh, wrath into favor. So a true Christian, at the beginning, the irreducible element, the must-have starting point, is the experience of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus and through that faith in Jesus to come to know God. It's simple. A sinner finding personal freedom from personal guilt through personal faith in what Christ has done on the cross, faith in Jesus. And so, friends, we see that the gospel is. Not first and foremost a guide to political revolution or a means to personal fulfillment or uh, uh, about bringing justice in the world. It is a sinner acknowledging and repenting of sin, believing in what Jesus has done for us, dying for our sins, and through that experiencing the promise of forgiveness of sins and the removal of guilt and now a right relationship with God. That's the basics. And for somebody to to become a Christian and to become a new believer, there is the basic starting point. And I just, I think this is wonderful. Okay, many of us have been Christians for many years and we look back to the time when we came to faith in, in Christ and that's pretty much what, happened right and yet there it is it is it is so simple isn't it who can't understand that basic truth the gospel i think sometimes there are people who fail to embrace the simple and understandable because they're still trying to figure out some complex philosophical theological thing yet and they allow the obscure question to keep them from the simple and the plain. And that might be you here. You're like, well, I can't embrace Christianity until I have every uh, I dotted and every T crossed. I've got to have it all figured out. No, you don't. I stand here before you. I do not have it all figured out. And if you wait until you have it all figured out, you will die a Christless 
death. It is simple. And perhaps that's the beauty of it being applied to, in the language here to children. Little children, my children, I write to you. Even children, chronological children, can understand this basic first step of Christian experience. Knowing God through faith in Jesus and having our sins forgiven. For many years I've had the uh, privilege, truly a privilege, to uh, help out, minister with uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship is the name of the organization. It's the largest uh, mission agency dedicated to evangelizing children in the world. And the story of how CEF got started is back in the 1930s, there was a guy named Jesse Overholzer who read a quote from Pastor Charles Spurgeon about children. And here's the quote that started the whole thing. Spurgeon said this, a child of five, if properly instructed, can as truly believe and be regenerated as an adult. And Overholzer looked at that quote and he thought to himself, if that is the case, I am going to spend the rest of my life trying to reach children with the gospel. And so he began uh, this ministry that now reaches millions of children. I think they presented the gospel to like 10 million children last year with millions at least professing faith in Jesus, which is, of course, a wonderful thing. Um, And all of that out of the thought that children can understand the basic necessary truths to begin the Christian life and the Christian experience. Now, let me ask you, with CEF, when they're ministering in Africa or Australia or wherever they're at, do they sit all the kids down and say, okay, I want to begin now, we want to tell you about Christianity, and let's begin with the doctrine of predestination. The kids are all like, no, they don't start with that. They don't begin there. They don't, do they begin by saying, now let's begin with the mysteries of the Trinity, Let's start with the nature of the hypostatic union of Jesus. And right now some of you are going, well, i got to know that. I'm not going to heaven. I have no idea what that is, right? (laughs) And that's kind of the point. There are all kinds of things that that, uh, we can learn and grow in and talk about and even disagree on that are wonderful, deep truths and mysteries of Christianity uh, that the Bible explores and leads us on. But we don't have to have all that stuff figured out. Now, we're all for deep theology, for sure. Just like the school system, they're for trigonometry. Crown Point High School, they're for trigonometry. But they don't expect the first graders to get that yet. And, and, and they don't require them to know that to be students. And similarly, God doesn't require us to know all the mysteries of the Trinity in order to be saved. In first grade, they're doing one plus one equals two. And in the new Christian experience, Jesus died for me. For my sins. And embracing that by faith, whether you are young or old, is the beginning point of the Christian experience. And so I just want to ask here, if possibly you might be allowing spiritual trigonometry uh, to mess up you embracing basic addition. And perhaps you could set those things aside as things to be learned later and figured out at a future date and to embrace the basic starting point. 
and to trust in Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and through him to know the God who made you for himself. Now, children, if you're here right now and you're looking around and there's an adult who has a bewildered look on their face right now, perhaps you could just whisper to them a second and explain to them the basics that I'm talking about because they're still confused. Children, you can get it, and so can the rest of us. It's the starting point, forgiveness of sins and knowing God through faith in Christ. The second stage that he uh, talks about, he actually goes to the end. He doesn't take it in the order we might expect. He goes now right to fathers. So I'll let the text be the guide for the points. We'll go to the other end of the Christian experience. Those that he calls father or fathers. And you'll notice, interestingly, that he, John, in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know who, him who is from the beginning. And then you get down to 14, and he, he decides to really, you know, confuse them. And he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. In other words, it's exactly the same. He repeats himself exactly the same. You read the commentaries, they're all like, why would he do that? And what was he intending? And all the rest. This is what commentators do. They explore the, the mysteries of all this. The best answer I had is, uh, that I read was, uh, if you want to re- emphasize something, you repeat it. So he gets to the fathers and he goes, you know what? I'm just going to say the same thing over again because I want those fathers to know that this is one of the signs that you are spiritually mature, that you know him who is from the beginning. Now, what is that or who is that talking about? Who is he who is from the beginning? And you may recall the beginning of the letter. It begins by saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, the word of life. And we talked about that, that there he is describing Jesus. Okay, he is describing Christ. So here we are just a few verses later, and he says almost the same thing. You know him who was from the beginning. I would have to say that he's talking about the same person that he used that language with just a few verses before. So that this the fathers or the spiritually mature in the congregation are those who have come to know Christ deeply. Or what I use say here, to treasure him. To come to realize who he is in his glory. Fully, more fully than the little children and the new, the new believers. Fathers. Fathers. This, of course, accords with the Christian experience that many of us are in the process of, of, of walking when we became Christians uh, if you're like me, I think I became a Christian when I was six. Okay. I genuinely think I became a Christian when I was six. I was in the children's ministry and back there we sang, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so little ones do him belong. They are weak, but yeah. Okay. Yes. Jesus loves me. And on it goes. All right. We celebrate that. The kids sing that uh doctrinally new believers sing that it's really really great it's absolutely true there's a lot to celebrate but if you've been a christian for 30 years and the summary statement of your christian experience is jesus loves me this i know for you are still a child maturity spiritually is not being a christian a long time 
There is growth and development primarily centering around a treasuring and a loving of the person of Christ in which over time, not only have I come knowledge-wise to know who he is more and more, but in the ups and downs of life and in the trials and the tribulations of life where the faith that I professed whenever that was when I began my Christian experience has now refined me in such a way where increasingly I am seeing that this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And that my heart's treasure is knowing Christ. And I'm realizing more and more how wonderful he is, and I am valuing him more and more. And as Paul writes in Romans 8, my life is increasingly orienting around his priorities so that I am actually in my attitude and in my actions being made into the likeness of Christ. That is, that is maturity. It is a sad thing to see somebody who's been a Christian a long time. Jesus loved me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But it is a wonderful thing to see somebody who made profession of faith in their life has lived the middle lapse of the spiritual journey and is now later in that journey and they are treasuring Christ more. There is an affection and a heart and a desire to honor Him in their life. They more and more want to know Him. They are looking forward to seeing Him when they die. In fact, there's a great indication of spiritual maturity when death is not such a fearful thing. Because the one that I love, I get to see. That's a sign of maturity. And how wonderful it is to have fathers and mothers in the church. That we see in your, the way you just live your life. There's stories that you can tell of battles that you've won and trials that you went through and victories that God gave you. And to be on the other side of it and for You just say, young people, you listen to me. The world's going to tell you to live for this, and this is what matters, and all the rest. But I'm telling you right now, it's nothing. It's nothing. Christ is everything. You live for him. We need fathers and mothers in our lives, don't we? Spiritual fathers and mothers who have those stories and have that heart. We need it very much. I think Paul reflects this just wonderfully. In Philippians 3, one of the most wonderful chapters in all of the Bible, here's what Paul says. If you want, what does it mean to treasure Christ? Here's what he says beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's the gem right there. I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing, the greater worth in my evaluation of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. Who talks like that? Spiritual fathers and mothers talk like that. And they live that out. That's maturity. To know Christ. To treasure him. To long for him. In such a way that in comparison, all the things in my life don't matter so much. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, and that long list, you cannot be my disciple. Is he saying, go out and hate your family members? No. He's making a comparison of value. And where he is saying, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, you have got to want, love, and follow me more than anything else. And all the other things that compete in our hearts. As a Christian with maturity, I now see them as not so important or rubbish, as he calls it here. Now, you say, well, don't demean the things in my life. It's not demeaning the things in my life. It is showing you how much greater Christ is. And when we get that and come to see him for who he is, now we are entering into the years of fathering and mothering spiritually. And we have left behind the immaturity of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Would that God would raise fathers and mothers here. And if you have a a spiritual father or mother in your life, listen to them. Get around them. Watch them. We have much to learn, those of us that are in the middle laps, from people who have, in the seasons of life, been faithful to Christ and love him all the more. Fathers. Little children, forgiveness of sins, knowing God. Fathers, on the other end, treasuring Christ above all things. The third group uh, are the adolescents, who he calls here young men. I write to you young men because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, John has more to say to this group than the other two, and I think for obvious reasons. We always have some new believers, and we thank God for the Charleses in our church and and others that are here right now. Praise God for new believers. And we have some fathers and mothers on the other end, and so we praise God for them. But most of us are in the middle laps, aren't we? John is writing here to where most of us are living right now. We're in the middle laps. We're in adolescence. We're not, we're not new Christians. We're not the seasoned Christians. We are the adolescent Christians. And for the adolescents, there are three qualities that indicate that we are genuinely followers of Jesus, that we have experienced true salvation. And those are, he says here, you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I think all of these are interrelated. One feeds the other, feeds the other. They have a kind of symbiotic relationship, three legs of the same stool, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, but they all, they all go together and should be taken as a whole. So if you say, well, you know what, I'm strong, but I don't even, I have, the word of God is not in me, but I'm okay because I got one of the three. No, these are all important and all need to be present. First of all, he says, you young men, because you are strong. 
Now, one of the things to be enjoyed in actual adolescence, chronological adolescence, is that sense of growing strong. And I remember I was, I was, I was pondering this. Um, I remember when I think maybe I was around 20 years old and I was thinking to myself, you know what, physically this is like as, this is like as good as it gets. And I was thinking I may never jump higher, run faster, you know, be stronger than I am when I'm 20 years old. And I said that to my dad. I said, dad, you know, in terms of like physically and all that, is, is this the case? And I remember my dad saying to me, he said, Steve, it's all downhill from here. Now, that has not been my experience at all, so I don't know what he's talking about there. <laughs> but uh, how true that is. I mean, it's such a fun time in life, and it's so fun in the church to, uh, we've got all these, you know, adolescent uh, boys in particular who, uh, you know, you look at them one week and they're like five foot tall, you look at them the next week and they're like six foot tall, you know, and uh, they're all gangly and and you know they're string beans and then you look the next week and they're you know like uh football players and you're like what's happened here and you know are you hanging out with alex rodriguez what's going on you know and uh but that's just the way it is when you are when you are in adolescence your body is changing your voice is getting deeper and you're getting taller and you're getting stronger and you're getting faster and it's a great time of life i you know you just sort of feel we we talk about young men they feel their oats and i don't even know where that comes from but i know what it means it's the it's that sense as a young man where you're walking around and you just sort of feel like all the muscles are working and every, you're just It feels so good. Man, I miss it. (laughs) And John here, I think, is is kind of in a wordplay way, drawing in what we all know to be true, that it is in these, these, uh, these stages where we are growing the most and we are feeling strength the most. And spiritually, the same thing is true. It's, it's, you know, when you're a new Christian, you're just starting to figure things out. And it's like there's a whole new world uh, that is open to me. And I, I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm excited to get started. When you're an adolescent spiritually, you are now beginning to see the effects of the regeneration of my heart. I am now beginning to realize that to have the Holy Spirit within me is a life-transforming reality. And so I'm beginning now to see as an adolescent, I'm beginning to see my way of thinking about things is starting to change. And I'm beginning to look at things through the grid of God's word. I am looking at my life and things that I used to think were really, really cool and I was all about it don't seem as important anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to view the world around me uh, through a Christian worldview. I'm uh, I'm, be, I'm looking at my life morally and habits that I had in my life aren't there as much as the lordship of Jesus is creeping and making its way over every category of my life. And indeed, Jesus will and wants to take over every category of our life. He is Lord. And as a Christian, I'm increasingly surrendering these areas of my life to the Lordship of Christ, which before I was a Christian, I would have thought I was insane to do. But now my heart, changed by the Holy Spirit, increasingly wants to do. So that like an adolescent boy who's getting taller and stronger and his voice is changing, the adolescent Christian uh, is getting taller and stronger and his life is changing. I write to you young men because you are strong. Secondly, he says, 
the word of God abides in you. Now, what does that mean? Well, to abide is to dwell. I abide in my house. I dwell in my house. I live in my house. Similarly, for the Christian, in the middle lapse, where I am growing and becoming strong, increasingly, the word of God is playing a very active role in my life. I am coming to know God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. I am uh, wanting to move off of the milk, as Hebrews writer uh, speaks of, and I'm wanting to go to meat doctrinally and teaching and, and all the rest. I am increasingly looking at the world this way. And I'm asking myself in decisions that I make in my life, well, what does God's word have to say about that? There is within the adolescent Christian who is growing strong an increasing valuing of God's word and a desire to obey it and fulfill it and know it and memorize it and hear it preached and all the rest. Again, things that prior to salvation, we would have thought we were insane to sit and listen to a sometimes 45 minutes, sometimes three hour sermon. Why would I want to do that? But now as a Christian who is growing stronger, there is an appetite and a craving, as Peter says, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word like a newborn infant. That is a fruit. That doesn't come from us. That is a fruit of the spirit within us. A wonderful one. And how important is that? Well, he says, you have overcome the evil one is the third quality that he gives here. And of course, um, we see this in the Bible. No, no better example of this than Jesus in his temptations. How important is the word of God in becoming strong and overcoming the evil one? Jesus goes out into the desert, Matthew 4. Don't have time to read the whole thing, but I'll just tell you the story. Matthew 4, Jesus goes out in the desert. And he, he doesn't eat for 40 days. He fasts for 40 days. So after not eating for 40 days, what are you pretty much wanting? More than anything else, you're wanting food. That's right, you're wanting food. And in that moment of weakness, here comes Satan and offers Jesus three temptations. And all three of them are temptations to fulfill God's will, not in God's way. Shortcuts to the purpose that the Father had in sending Jesus to this earth. And in each case, Jesus, he doesn't say, I'm the son of God and I am impervious to this temptation. Oh, depart from me, which maybe he could have done. Rather, what does he do? In each case, he quotes scripture to Satan and says, no, 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 what you are saying is not true because this is what God's word says. And we see that symbiotic relationship between growing strong as a Christian and uh, uh, the role of the word of God in overcoming evil and temptation. They, they work together. So here at our church, we, we believe in that. And you say, well, why, why in our children's ministry do we teach them uh, the Bible? Why are we doing the gospel project in our children's ministry? And why in our young people's ministries do we uh, have our uh, leaders and directors, why are they uh, spending time teaching God's word? And 
Why do we have women's Bible studies? And why do our small groups spend time learning about God's truth? And why do we have sermons every single weekend? And why do we podcast? And why do we have a bookstore? And why do we have all of these resources? The reason we have them is that it is God's word within us which makes us strong, which makes us able to overcome temptations of all different kinds, which makes us stronger again. And that is how we do that in the middle laps. And as we do that, we gain victories in moments of trial and temptation and difficulty. And all of those are seasoning us and purifying our hearts so that we increasingly treasure Christ, which is moving us from middle adolescence to maturity, to becoming fathers and mothers. And I want to say to you, friends, this is what God's purpose is in your life. He is growing you. Christian, he is growing you and changing you. Don't be mad as he does it. There is a goal that he has for you. He wants to make you in the likeness of his son. And to refine out of our hearts all the things that get in the way of that. So that in the end, we can be a father and mother who looks back on life and shares with the adolescents and the children, there is nothing in life worth living for more than Christ. He is the ultimate. Listen, I've done it. Let me tell you about this trial and that trouble and how God helped me here. And boy, I blew it there. I totally blew it there. But how wonderful Christ is. And you know what? I can't wait to see him. New believers become spiritual adolescents. And spiritual adolescents become fathers and mothers. And when a church is healthy and when God's people are healthy, that, just like in real life, if, if, a, if, a, if a baby isn't changing, that's a sick baby. And if there is an adolescent who isn't changing, that's a very sick adolescent. Health means change. And here's how it relates to the big theme of 1 John. Remember, John is writing about assurance. How can I know that I am saved? And these uh, indications are not just how we grow as Christians. It is also how we know we are Christians. Here's the bottom line. The real evidences of salvation relate to growth and ongoing change from spiritual immaturity to maturity. And John's going to talk about all kinds of categories of change moral categories and loving one another and doctrinal uh, matters. And those are all like a teenage boy who's getting taller and he's getting stronger and his, his voice is changing. They're categories of change. But all of them are indicating that there is health inside. And if, if those changes aren't there, there's not health inside. But when there is, there is growth into the likeness of Christ. And again, we're not talking about doing spiritual trigonometry your first year after becoming a Christian. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. We're all works in progress here. So praise God for new believers. And you might be a new believer going, well, I go to the prayer meeting and I don't know that I pray right. I got to get these and thous and big words in there or I don't feel like I fit in. We don't care about that. You don't need trigonometry. And if you're a middle lapper in the Christian faith and you're like, oh, but I I really want to be viewed as a father or a mother, that takes time. Hang in there in the middle laps and learn the lessons and grow and change and, and, and ask God to change you into likeness of Christ. 
And if you're a father or mother here, we need to hear from you. We need you to speak to us middle lappers and the new believers. Tell us what life is all about. Tell us how much you used to live for this or that, but now you look at it and you say, it's rubbish to me. Don't live for those things. Live for Christ and his kingdom and then show us how to do that. And as we have the new believers and the middle lappers and the, and the mature fathers and mothers all doing our thing, we look around and we look in the mirror and we say, look what the Spirit of God is doing. Look what God hath wrought. We are in the grace of God. We see the evidence in our church and in our lives. Praise God for it. So 1 John calls us to look to reliable evidences, not whether I claim to be a Christian or I had some experience in my life. John doesn't even talk about that. It's this change. It's this change that doesn't save us. doesn't save us. But it does show that we are and can assure us very much that we are in the grace of God. Amen. Would you stand together with me for prayer? With me for prayer? me for prayer.